but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. Holy Father, we thank you today that you give a righteousness, that your word and the Torah is clear, cannot come through the law. For the law just shows us how guilty we are. But thank you for that righteousness that you said would come through the promised Messiah that has been realized in Jesus the Christ. We bow before him today, giving you praise and honor and adoration that we who deserve nothing but death, that you would clothe us in his righteousness, that we could know you. Thank you that this is eternal life, you said, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ Jesus whom you've sent. And may we know him more closely, more intimately. May we count all the benefits that maybe we've obtained in this life as mere rubbish is dung in comparison with knowing you and walking with you. Let him who boasts you said boast in this, that they know me. We thank you that you've revealed yourself through your word. And so as we open the infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of God, we ask you to open our hearts. Thank you that the Spirit lives in each and every one who's been born again. And we pray today for his ministry amongst those who are yet to receive Jesus as Lord. Help them to see their need. And those who have, help us to depend upon you. We want to use our minds, but not lean on them. We ask that the Spirit would be the one who illuminates the truth that is found here and that he would personally apply it to our lives that we might leave here, not just as those who've heard the word, but those who are willing to do it. So come and help me. I pray for the meeting this evening as friends and visitors come to meet the pastor, that you would bless that meeting that you would help those who are believers to find a church home, if that be us, and those who are yet to believe and be assured of salvation, that today would be a turning point. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of Daniel. If you're new to the Bible, if you find Psalms, which are about dead center, just scan a little bit to the right and you will soon come to the prophet Daniel. It's right after Ezekiel. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, you'll be interested to know we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great book. And today we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 10. I don't know about you, but I've been enjoying this study of Daniel's lifelong commitment to the living God. Here's a man who is the prophet of the end time, but he's also the prophet of the meantime because he teaches us how to morally, spiritually, ethically live strong in the midst of a pagan culture. He's writing at the, for the end of time, but he's a model for those of us especially who would come at the end of the church age to teach us to how to live. And he's a man who models integrity because as his name means, God is my judge. He could care less what people thought. He was interested in pleasing the living God and his convictions came from the word of God. And so we are in that section of Scripture that is dealing with prophecy. 
And it's a prophecy in the latter half of the book that deals with the second return of the Messiah. Not only the first coming, but the second coming. Now, some people say, well, why study the Old Testament? Seems like we should be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or some epistle. Well, because the Bible tells us to. In Romans 15, the apostle wrote, for whatever was written in earlier times, in the context he's referring to the Old Testament, whatever was written in the Old Testament, in what the Jews call the Tanakh, and an acronym for Torah, Nephaim, the prophets, and Ketuvim, the wisdom literature, they call their Bible the Tanakh. Whatever was written in the Tanakh and the Old Testament was written not just for the Jewish people, but it's written for us, the church, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So that, he says, through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. He is reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament does not exhaust itself with that time frame. And so Daniel chapter 10, it's an incredible chapter that deals with the subject of prayer and spiritual warfare. You may not know it, but this morning there is an invisible war that you cannot see with the naked eye that is raging. And this text of Scripture illustrates that for us. Paul speaks of it in his letter to the Ephesians when he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This verse, like this chapter informs us that there is an invisible war that is happening even now as we speak. And our passage helps us to see that. Things that you cannot see with the naked eye. Like in 2 Kings 6, when Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha followed Elijah. I always remembered it as a new Christian. J comes before S, so Elijah first, and Elisha came second, right? He wanted a double portion of Elijah's spirit and He does twice as many miracles as Elijah does, as recorded in the Scripture. But on one occasion, when it seemed hopeless, he asked that God would give his servant a vision of what was really happening. And God gave him a vision of all the chariots and horses and mighty angels of God that were there to protect them. Well, God wants you to see today what is happening in the invisible realm. Now, let me bring it into the broad context. If you remember, the book divides into two halves. One through six is the historical section of the prophet Daniel. It's largely history with a little bit of prophecy in there. Daniel 7 through 12 is largely prophetical with a little bit of history in there. And so if you remember, uh, in chapters 2, 4, and 5, Daniel has some visions, but they're not his visions, they're someone else's visions, and he interprets them. But when you come to the second half of the book, these are Daniel's visions, And God helps him to understand them. Now, chapters 10, 11, and 12 bring us to the final vision. If you've been with us for the last four weeks, we've studied the ninth chapter, and we spent three weeks just on verses 20 through 27, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. But today we come to the fourth and final vision. And chapter 10 forms really a prologue, uh, excuse me, an introduction to that vision. Chapter 11 is the vision itself, which we'll spend a few weeks on. And then chapter 12 serves as a postscript to that vision. Now, that's the broad context. Let me bring you into the immediate context. If you read this chapter several times, you'll see there are three distinct divisions. In verses 1 through 3, we have a revelation of things to come. In verses 4 through 9, God gives gives us a revelation of Himself, which we will see is very, very important. 
And then in verses 10 through 21, we have a revelation from an angelic being. All right, so that's where we're going. Let's begin with the revelation of things to come. Now, beginning in verse 1, our attention is drawn to the prophet Daniel. And at this point, he's an old man. When we meet him in the first chapter, he and his three friends are designated in the Hebrew text as youths. And it's a Hebrew word that would refer typically to a teenager. But when we come to chapter 10... He's in his late 80s, possibly early 90s, as you study the chronology of the book. Now, remember, the time frame at this time in human history is what Moses described in Psalm 90 and verse 10. People weren't living six, seven, eight, nine hundred years old. At this point, the time frame of humanity had come down basically to where it is today. As for the days of our life, they contained 70 years of due to strength, 80. So that would probably mean that most of the people that left Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar came, had now passed away and had been dead. And of course, uh, here's Daniel, still alive, still standing. I love him. I admire him. As an old man, he's still walking for the Lord. He reminds me of Caleb. I love Caleb too. He's a challenge to me at the age of 85. He's still living for God. Yesterday, I did seven miles. I want to be strong. I hope if God will allow me and Christ tarries, that I'll be able to preach into my 80s. But here's a man who's spiritually alert and he's active for God. Now let's begin with the context of the revelation. We read here in the opening verse, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. Not Belshazzar, remember, that's another king, but this is the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave him, the pagan name. Most of us don't know Daniel's pagan name, but we know his three friends by their pagan name rather than by their Hebrew name. So this one named Belshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Now, there's a wealth of information in that verse that you don't want to miss. We're told first in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That gives us the time of the revelation. Now, Daniel gives us that detail, not because he doesn't have anything else to say, but because he knows there will be some believers who will search and study the Scripture like one longs for silver and gold, who will take a very uh, committed approach to the Bible, and they know that is a significant date if they're going to understand all that's in this chapter. Now, if you remember the 70 weeks prophecy that we studied in the ninth chapter, the vision according to 9.1 was in the first year of Darius, the son of Harasuerus. So a question we need to ask is, when did Daniel arrive in Babylon? Well, the opening verse of the book tells us, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And so the very first group that is carried away into exile by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon was Daniel, and it was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. And since the ninth chapter takes place in, in the, uh, as, as 9-1 indicates, in the first year of Darius, we studied, and I, and I gave it to you very carefully, that 67 of the 70 years that God said they would be in exile had transpired. Now, I hope you remember that the exile was going to be 70 years long. And it's not a figure that God pulls out of the air. It was by divine design. In 9.2, we read, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet 
for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. He's having his quiet time there. And twice over, Jeremiah designates the time frame. In 2511 of that prophet, he writes, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So when we come to the opening verse in this chapter, 10.1, we're told it's in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. What does that tell me? It tells me we're now in the 72nd year. The 70 years of captivity are over. It's two years past the captivity. And so uh, that's important. Now, you might want to turn to the book of Ezra or just listen carefully. In Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1, God tells us how he and his sovereignty ended the 70-year exile. The book of Ezra has two parts to it, 1 through 6 deals with the time frame before Ezra was alive. He's going to write all about it. Seven through ten of the book of Ezra deals with the prophet's life, but he writes the whole book, Ezra the priest. In between chapters six and seven, there's a 58-year gap in which the events of the book of Esther take place. But in Ezra chapter 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and then in the third verse, whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord and the, uh, uh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So here's this pagan king who views the God in Jerusalem as kind of a localized God, one of many, but nonetheless, he gets the bright idea one day, I think I should let the people go. <laughs> Where did he get that from? God stirred up his heart. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, this man Cyrus, 150 years before he is even born, is written about by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, God is speaking, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. It's a beautiful picture of God stirring up the heart of the king because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And so God works in this man's heart. And ever before he's born, he names the fellow. Now, this is why the critics hate the Bible, because prophecy is history pre-written. So if you are sitting under some pastor who uses terms like Deutero or Tritero Isaiah, he's denying the prophetic nature of the book, saying there's two or three authors to Isaiah because he doesn't want to affirm the supernatural nature of Holy Scripture. So verse 1 of this chapter speaks volumes. It's a detail you can skip over. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the captivity is over. The Jews have been freed, and yet we read in the book of Nehemiah that only a remnant of people went back to Jerusalem. And you might be asking, why didn't Daniel go back? Well, I don't know for certain. There are many speculations. Maybe he was too old. Uh, maybe it would have been too hazardous for him at his age to travel all the way back. Remember, he's a guy pushing potentially 90. 
But secondly, and more likely, I think God wanted him to stay because he could use him in a greater way there in Babylon, which is now, of course, uh, under Cyrus's control. It's the Persian Empire. He could use him there in a greater way than if he had gone back. I mean, think about it. Number one, he could write the book that we're reading about today, which he did. He wrote it while he was there. Still in, uh, freed, but nonetheless, he wrote it. Secondly, he could certainly minister to maybe a lot of the older people who couldn't go back. Most of the older people who were young when Daniel left were dead, but some of them were still alive, and they needed care, and God cares about old people. Any society that rips off babies in the womb and has a disdain for old people, is a society on its last leg. And that's our society. We rip off babies in the womb, and we have a growing disdain for old people. You read about our national health care, you read the fine print, and it's scary, some of the things that are coming online, if it continues to stay. And third, he has the opportunity to minister to this big, complacent majority who doesn't leave. So number one, maybe some were too old. Secondly, God, I think, could use him in a greater way for his glory, obviously, and so he stayed. But third, I think he probably stayed for another reason. Now remember, Esther is going to come into the throne room during the Persian Empire. Between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, there's a 58-year gap when the events of the book of Esther take place. And if you remember Esther, God raises her up for such a time like this, and a decree is going to be written, we studied it at the first of the year, to destroy all the Jewish people, not just in Persia, but in the whole Persian empire, which would include Jerusalem. So having a vital believer who had an uncle who had been trained by people before going back to Daniel, who are strong in their faith, is what brings Esther to the throne room for a time such as like this to preserve the Jewish people from destruction because God is going to bring the Messiah through them. And fourth, I think it's very possible that there are Christmas overtones in his stain. Remember, here is a man who uh, had a ministry, no doubt, with the wise men or magi. He preserved a whole group of them from their destruction. No doubt those men from the East were long-term descendants of Magi's. Professions were uh, passed down from one generation in the Persian culture. And no doubt many of them came under some of the disciples of Daniel, and they were looking for the Messiah in his birth. So God had good reasons. So volume one speaks huge to me. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was Belshazzar. By the way, I think these dates and names and kings are also given for another reason. Not just to help Christians unfold the meaning of the prophet, but also to put the critics on notice. You see, God knew centuries ago that beginning in the 19th century to our day that the single two most attacked books of the Bible would be both Genesis and the prophet Daniel. And had not God put the dates throughout this book, then the critics could easily say, well, this is just history. This is just some guy named Daniel, not the Daniel who lived in the 6th century B.C., because no one can foretell the future. But when God places the dates of reigning kings 
in specific years with that date. And then he adds, this is the Daniel whose name is Belshazzar. This is not just any old Daniel. This is the Daniel who is given that pagan name by Nebuchadnezzar. Then God puts them on notice. Either the book of Daniel is all true or it's a big lie. It's either genuine prophecy or it's a forgery. So they have to decide. And they also have to decide something about the Lord Jesus Christ because three times in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus quotes the prophet Daniel. And he refers to him not as Daniel the historian, but as Daniel the prophet. So Jesus either lied, which would make him a sinner and therefore not the savior of the world, or he told the truth. And so people have to decide what they do with Daniel. They equally have to decide what they will do with Christ. You cannot remain neutral by the way God penned these words. Now that's the content, the context of the revelation. In addition, I want us to think about the conflict in the revelation. There's a conflict that surrounds this context. We're told the message was true and one of great conflict. If you're using the old English, it says the message was true, but the appointed time was long. Well, was the message long or was it a message of great conflict? And the answer is yes, both are correct. If you're trying to do a literal rendering of the Hebrew into English and you're trying to use a word-for-word correlation, there's no single English word that will capture it. So on the one hand, the King James is right to say that the message was long, but the New American Standard and other translations are equally correct in saying it was a message of great conflict, of great difficulty. And when we come to chapter 11 in our next gathering, we're going to learn it was a long and strenuous time for the people of God. Again, you need to remember chapter 10 is the prologue. Chapter 11 is the vision itself. And chapter, uh, ch- chapter 12 is the postscript of the vision. All right. And it is an unbelievable vision. It is a mind-blowing vision. You want to be here for that study. But as Daniel verse 1 says, the message is true. Now, Daniel is going to be given an understanding of the vision. He hasn't received it yet. He's not going to receive it until it's recorded for us in the 11th chapter. I mean, he's going to record what he receives. But nonetheless, as we come to the 11th chapter, we're going to see it's a time of great conflict. Look at verses 2 and 3. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. Now, the English text says weeks. Remember, when you see the word weeks, you're supposed to think what word? Sevens. uh, Someone remembered. All right. Seventy-sevens have been decreed. Seventy weeks. But we saw in the ninth chapter, it was weeks of years and not weeks of days because the Jew has both. It's uh, obvious to us as English readers, just from the nature of what's going on, that he's not dealing with weeks of years, but weeks of days, because no one can, you know, do what Daniel does in these verses for for, uh, 21 years. Nonetheless, the Spirit of God adds weeks of days. You wouldn't expect him to add that, but he does it to underscore that there is a difference between what he has just said at the end of chapter 9 with the 77s of years versus these days. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks or uh, 21 days. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. Now, circle that word mourning. You might be thinking, what is he mourning about? Well, 
We know that he is not mourning about the vision because he hasn't been given the vision yet. The vision comes in response to his prayer. You see, Daniel is bothered by the current state of the Jewish people. We already read in chapter 9 and verse 5, he prays, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. And so while it's not spelled out in this chapter, we know from other Bible passages that these people are in a desperately bad place spiritually. In fact, the time frame is described in the early chapters of the book of Ezra. Remember, Ezra is a priest, and he is given insight by God as to what is really happening. You might want to turn to the book of Ezra, but let me just remind you for just a moment. Cyrus, because God stirs up his heart, moves him to write a decree to say to all the Jewish people, you're free to go, you can go back to Jerusalem. Now remember, initially, as you read in the prophet Jeremiah, we studied the 29th chapter weeks ago, that there were false prophets who lived during Jeremiah's day who said, oh, the time of deportation is not going to be 70 years. It's going to be a short time. Don't worry, you're not going to be here long. You're going to be able to go home soon. And the prophet Jeremiah comes online, and in the 29th chapter, he says, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and not decrease. He reminds them, hey, look, it's going to be 70 years. They all want to go home initially. Now 70 years have gone by, and virtually no one wants to go home. There's approximately two to three million Jews living here. And according to the book of Ezra in the second chapter, only 49,897 choose to go back. It's just a remnant. Now, I think Daniel would have crawled back if he could have gone, if God would have let him. Here's a man who loves Jerusalem. He loves the holy mountain where the temple once stood. He cares about the things of God. He turned every day towards Jerusalem three times and prayed in that direction. And yet all Daniel can see is the incredible apathy of the people of his day such that they don't care to go back. They had a chance. The king himself was stirred by God Almighty. Go back, build your temple, build your city. And they sit on their hands because it's too comfortable. And so we read in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 3. So they set up the altar on its foundation. This remnant went back, but there's a second problem. For they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and burnt offerings morning and evening. So they go back, they set up the altar, but they get all this opposition. And Ezra and Nehemiah both write about it. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. And so when they finally get the courage up to ignore all the threats of the pagans in the land, we read this in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building the temple to the Lord God of Israel, they appointed Zerubbabel and the heads of father's household and said to them, let us build with you. For we, like you, seek your God, and we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Eshardon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia. 
Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. So you can see why Daniel is so burdened, why he is mourning. The people are apathetic. Most don't want to go back. And those few that went back out of several million are discouraged. They are frightened by what is going on. You can read Ezra. They write a letter to the king. They say, these people, king, they're just trying to get out of paying taxes. And so he puts a stop order on the whole project. So that's the conflict in the revelation that is causing this man to mourn. Then there's the concern over the revelation. The concern over the revelation. We read here in verse 3, I did not put any, I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. So Daniel's burden moves him to some lifestyle changes for 21 days. He abstained from tasty food. The Hebrew literally means tasty bread, or you could render it food of delight. The Net Bible says no choice food. The ESV renders it no delicacies. Now, this was not an absolute fast, but he abstained from certain kinds of food, and he took very simple food, maybe as a time factor, so he didn't have to prepare. He just took simple food, what he needed to sustain himself to live. We're also told that he did not eat meat, but he also abstained from wine, which we saw in chapter 1, that he did not want the king's wine because it would have been strong drink. And so the Jewish people who did not want to violate uh, God's admonition not to partake of strong drink, the one exception was to give it to a dying man, like we give morphine to someone in the hospital. They would mix it with water, but he said, no, I'm going to abstain from wine. But in addition, the Bible says he abstained from using ointment. And Jews used ointments as a means of grooming themselves when they went out to be socially active in the culture. Today, we might put on perfume or aftershave. But Daniel recognizes that all of these things are distractions, and he wants to give his full attention to the Lord God because he has this deep burden in his heart. By the way, where do you go when you have a deep burden in your heart? See, some of us, we don't go to God first. We go to our spouse first. We run to our pastor. We run to our girlfriend, our, our, our guy friend, whatever it might be. Or we have a conversation with ourselves. And we carry the problem over in our mind and we talk to ourselves about the problem. But here's a man of God who intensely seeks the living God. That's the context in which this divine visitation is given. So that's the first point. Secondly, there in your outline, there's the revelation of God himself. At the end of three weeks of mourning and abstention, God is going to give him a revelation. But before he gives him the revelation recorded in the 11th chapter, God speaks to him about himself. And by the way, that's important. You can study Bible prophecy, but if you miss God in the midst of that prophecy, you've missed the most important thing. You can even get overwhelmed and even fearful by prophecy. But when you recognize God is on his throne, he is in control, he is sovereign in all that is happening, it brings a sense of peace. So first, there are three truths that are unscored, underscored in this revelation of God. The first is the time of the revelation. The time of the revelation is very significant. We're told in verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. So he began fasting on the third of Nisan, 
until the 24th day of the first month, until the 24th of Nisan. Why is that important? Because the Torah tells us that there are two feasts that were carried on during that time. The Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You say, why is that important? Because those were two of the seven feasts that God dictated for the Jewish people to celebrate. And those two feasts were to remind Israel of their liberation, their freedom out of Egypt. It was a reminder of an, a marvelous emancipation that God brought. So the Jews are still here in Babylon. And while they are celebrating their 4th of July, so to speak, their emancipation, their deliverance out of Egypt, they're ignoring the freedom that God gave them through Cyrus the king telling them they can go home. And so this house that was once a house of bondage had become a house of business because life was so good there, they didn't want to go back. Their priorities were out of whack. That's the time of the revelation. Think about the terror during the revelation. There's a certain terror that unfolds. So in this vision, Daniel gets a revelation of the glorified Christ. Centuries before Jesus ever appeared and gave a glimpse of the coming kingdom on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah are there with the glorified Christ, there were times when he came, ever before he took on human flesh, he shows up at various occasions in the Old Testament. And this is one of those occasions. Let's read verses 5 through 7. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. Now precisely who was this certain man? Well, some expositors say, well, a heavenly visitor. Well, that's a good, safe answer, but it doesn't really exegete the text. Can we know who this person is? Yes, we can. This was indeed the Lord Jesus before he had incarnated himself in Mary's womb. There are in the Old Testament theophanies and Christophanies where God appears, where he will show himself and manifest himself. And one of the famous theophanies or Christophanies of the Old Testament is when God comes as the angel of the Lord. Now remember, one of the titles for Messiah that the prophet Isaiah gave was Emmanuel, God with us. But ever before God was with us, literally, actually, physically, in a body as he walked upon the earth, he appeared through the second person of the Trinity as the angel of the Lord. There are numerous passages we can look at, but let's just look at one. It's found in Genesis 16. You can turn there or you can listen. Genesis 16 and verse 3, the occasion is Hagar, who is forced to flee from Abraham and Sarah's home, and she's out in the desert. We're told in, told in Genesis 16, verse 3, after Abram, before he's named Abraham, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, 
May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. By the way, this is the very first time the angel of the Lord appears. It's not an angel, but it's the angel. And if you've been with our study of Daniel, we learn that the different English spellings of the word Lord would help you to discern which Hebrew word is in view. You can read it in the introduction to your New American Standard Bible. It's all caps, capital L-O-R-D. This is the angel of Jehovah, the angel of Yahweh, verse 8. He said, Hagar, Sarai's, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Now notice the irony of this verse. The angel of the Lord knows Hagar's name. He knows all about her problems and yet he asks her, where'd you come from? Where are you going? Remember, God never asks questions in the Bible as an omniscient God to get information. He asks questions in the Bible, where are you, Adam, to reveal problems or needs in our life? Hagar could flee from the presence of Sarai, but she could not flee from the presence of the Lord. And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And notice verse 9, how he graciously responds and gives her a command. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourselves to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Don't worry, Hagar, you're going to have a baby, and from this child will come a great nation, and your descendants will be many. Now, that is a promise that only God Almighty can make because only God Almighty can create. And yet the angel of the Lord says, I will multiply your descendants. Furthermore, in verse 11 of that chapter, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son by divine ultrasound. She finds out she's going to have a baby boy and you shall call his name Ishmael which in Hebrew literally means God hears, which is a reminder to me that God cares about abused people. And he cares about little babies, even babies in the womb, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Furthermore, this is no ordinary angel. 1613 says, then he called the name of, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Please note, Moses is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and he refers to her as the angel of Yahweh. He uses the Hebrew tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, a title exclusively given to God. Then she called the name, not of the angel, but of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees for she said, I have even remained alive here after seeing him. She recognized the one that she was speaking to was God himself, that God had come in veiled form as the angel of the Lord such that she could see him and still live. Now, there are many other passages we could look at 
where the angel of the Lord appears, like with Jacob or Abraham there on the top of Mount Moriah or uh, Moses at the burning bush or Gideon there uh, when he has his experience out there as well. But here is an important reference to the angel of the Lord. It is God himself, as each of those passages indicate, the angel of the Lord is called God. And God himself identifies himself with the term Lord or God in those various passages. So think your way through this. This is very important. You say, okay, if this is God, which member of the Godhead is it? Is it Father, Son, or the Spirit? Clearly it's the Son. How do you know? I'll give you six reasons. You can jot them down and go home and study them if you want. Number one, the second person of the Trinity is the only visible member of the Godhead in the New Testament. Just as the angel of the Lord is the only visible member of the Godhead in the Old Testament. Number two, the terminology, the angel of the Lord, never ever once appears in the New Testament after the incarnation. And there's a reason. Because Jesus has incarnated himself. Third, both the angel of the Lord and Jesus Christ are both sent by God the Father. God the Father is never sent. Fourth, The angel of the Lord could not be God the Spirit because like God the Father, he is never seen. He never appears in bodily form in Scripture. Jesus compared the Spirit to the wind, but the wind blows where it pleases, yet you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. Fifth, equally true, God the Father never takes on bodily form. In fact, Paul, when he writes to Timothy, says in 1 Timothy 6, that the Father dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be glory and honor and eternal dominion. And sixth and finally, the angel of the Lord, and this is the telltale one, this is the corker, is the one who is said to accompany the people of Israel through the wilderness. And Paul boldly says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that that was the Lord Jesus himself. Now I say all that to say this. When Daniel has this encounter with this certain man, this is not the first time he has appeared in Scripture. And I know for other reasons that this was the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Why don't you hold your finger here and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, and go to Revelation chapter 1. The beloved disciple is given a prophetic vision from Jesus Christ. This beloved disciple, he's the esteemed one, Daniel, is also given equally a prophetic vision of the end of time. Now, as you're turning there, let me read the description of this person, this certain man that Daniel sees. He said, I lifted up my eyes, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of euphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Again, if you know your Bible, then you know this is virtually the identical description that the Apostle John has of the risen Christ in Revelation 1. Listen to verse 12 of that chapter. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. 
And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast was a gold, with, a gold, with a, a golden girdle. So just as in Daniel's vision, this one dressed with a, is dressed in a robe, and he has a belt of gold around his waist, verse 14, and his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Daniel also describes the eyes of this certain man with like flaming torches. Furthermore, in verse 15 of this chapter, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been caused to glow in a furnace. Daniel said his feet were like the gleam of polished bronze. John adds, in his voice was like the sound of many waters. That's exactly how Daniel describes the voice of this certain man. The sound of his words, he says, was the sound of a tumult. Look at Revelation 1.16. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp sword, and his face was like the shining sun in its strength. Identical in description, a shining face. This one in the Revelation and in Daniel's vision. Now understand what happened to the Apostle John when he saw Christ in heaven. Revelation 1.17 says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Now back here to Daniel chapter 10. What happened to Daniel? We read in Daniel 10 and verse 7, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned in a deathly parlor, pallor, and I retained no strength. Daniel saw him and passed out. John sees the risen Christ, and he passes out. There's something about the glory of God that most of us know very little of. We flippantly call him, pagans do, I hope you don't, the man upstairs. When Isaiah has a picture of him, all he can say in the trisigion, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And if most of us had a vision like Daniel or John or Isaiah did, we too would fall down. We too would recognize that we are unworthy. And so even these men in Daniel's day who didn't see the vision, but they sensed the presence of God, they hide and they flee. Just like in the Revelation, people hide from God. They go into the caves and they say, fall on us. And just like the men on the Damascus road with the Apostle Paul, he sees the risen Lord. They don't see him, but they are frightened and terrified. A great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. Now, beyond the terror during the revelation, think about the trance after the revelation. The trance that follows. Look now at verse 9. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Listen, had this person been a normal, everyday kind of angel, Daniel never would have had the kind of reaction he did. When he sees the angel Gabriel in Daniel 8, he's initially frightened, but he's not paralyzed. 
In fact, when you read in his second time, he's very comfortable. He's no longer frightened. But when he meets this person, he cannot move and he cannot speak. It's like someone terrified in a dream and it's like you're frozen. Now, there's one more truth. Beyond the revelation of things to come and the revelation of God Himself, there's the revelation from an angelic being. The vision of the divine person fades, and Daniel, we will see now, is left talking with an ordinary angel. Probably the angel Gabriel, who accompanied the Son of God. He's the messenger angel of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, just as Michael is the defender, the warrior angel. And so the scene changes. No longer do we have Daniel having a vision of the Son of God, but an angel comes to minister to him, and there are three aspects of this encounter by which he cares for him. And there are three things that I want you to see. First, the conflict uh, delaying this revelation, the conflict delaying the revelation. What I want you to see, if you don't get anything else out of the message today, is that there is an invisible war. There is an unseen conflict that is going on that most of us are not aware of. Look now at verse 10. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He doesn't use a uh, antecedent, uh, a pronoun to point back. He, he's talking about a, a different angel, and that becomes clear as how he will speak to this one. He will, unlike all the other encounters with the angel Lord, he doesn't call him Yahweh of God. This is just an ordinary angel. Oh, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to your words. So here was Daniel earnestly, humbly seeking the face of God for three entire weeks. And God heard his prayer the moment he prayed. It's an example of what Isaiah writes in 65, 24. It will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Our prayers can be answered faster than the speed of light. But according to this text, while God immediately heard him, the answer was delayed for three weeks. And I'm sure there are different reasons why while you pray, your prayer, like my prayer, is sometimes delayed. Sometimes we ask amiss, and God just knows if we have some time behind us, we will see that what we're asking for is not for our best or for God's glory, and we change our prayer. Or sometimes God uses natural means to answer our prayer. Certainly, He could heal you instantly in a moment's time, and He does that on occasion. But most of the time, God uses medical means to answer the prayer, and that may take time. Or sometimes... God knows that our hearts aren't right for an immediate answer. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. Isaiah said, your sin has made a separation between you and your God such that he does not hear. A verse written to believers, so we apply it to the lost. But it's written to God's people. 
So it's a reminder to me that God's delays does not mean that he has denied the answer. Remember, Jesus said, when you pray, keep praying. Don't give up. Persevere in prayer. Keep on praying as long as it is in your heart. But what is so interesting in Daniel 10 is there's an entirely different reason as to why this answer was delayed. Now, follow. This is a fascinating section of Scripture. There's nothing quite like it anywhere found in all of the Bible. As soon as the prayer is uttered, God hears the prayer. He sends an angel to answer the prayer. But because of an unseen, invisible war that is taking place, the answer is delayed. Now, look, if you will, at verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And behold, Michael... One of the chief princes came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Clearly, these are not human princes. If you know a little bit of the Bible, you know Michael is the archangel. He's one of the chief princes. There's only one who's given the designation of archangel in Scripture. Maybe there are more. We sing in that hymn, highest archangels in glory. But there's only one that is named. But Michael, along with some other chief princes, are in a battle. And we are told here that the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me. Withstanding me. So Daniel had asked in prayer, and God answers by sending an angel. But there's an angel over Persia that slows him down. He's He's intercepted, and so the prayer is delayed for 21 days. Look, very often behind the struggle is a struggle that you do not see. You know, right now, the Bible teaches there are angels here. 1 Corinthians 14 teaches us that. That there are angels when the church gathers for worship. There are angels that are here that are watching us this morning. You may not have thought about it, but our congregation is a lot bigger than some of you realize. But there's also angels that are at work in the invisible realm that you also don't see, that are fallen angels, that are demons. And so Paul says to the church at Ephesus, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He's reminding them where there are these divisions in the church. You think the problem is the guy sitting next to you, but that's not the real problem. It's not flesh and blood. The real problem is rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness that are operating in the heavenly places. Now, who is this prince of Persia mentioned here in verse 13? Clearly, he's not a man because in the context, it's dealing with Michael and and these angelic beings. Clearly, he's not a literal prince, a literal human king in Persia. There's no man on earth that would meet this description. I mean, think about it for a second. The apostle Peter says that angels are greater in might and power than humans. The women come to the tomb and no one is there to move the rock, but there's no fear because an angel, because they're so much stronger and mightier than we are, move that 2,000 ton stone. One angel, according to Kings, wipes out 185,000 of Israel's enemies. The prince of Persia obviously is not a man, for no human could have resisted for 21 seconds, much less 21 days. Understand, this is a fallen angel. Between heaven and earth, there's an invisible war that is taking place. Now understand that Satan is organized. Satan hates you today. 
He wants to ruin your life. And if you've not been saved, He wants to blind you to the truth of the gospel. And if you are saved, He wants to slow you down and incapacitate you from having an impact for God's kingdom. There's a real war that is going on. And Satan, as the God of this world, has some authority. Remember, he met the living God there out in the wilderness of Judea. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. That was a legitimate temptation and a legitimate offer. Jesus never says, well, the kingdoms are not yours to give because they were. Adam had been given domain, but he lost it through sin. And now the devil gained the domain of this world system. There's coming a day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. But right now we're told in 1 John 5, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, in whose case the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That's why you should talk to God before you talk to men. There's a spiritual battle that's going on. Some to keep you from coming to this church. Some to keep you from ever coming to meet the pastor and getting saved and knowing what it means to be saved and being 100% sure. The devil will give you 10,000 reasons why it is unimportant for you to make spiritual priorities, number one. Ephesians 2 says that you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, one of the titles for Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So right now, this world belongs to Satan and he has demons that work under him. And so there's an organization that he has. Two of them are mentioned in this chapter, the prince of Persia. And when we come down to verse 20, the prince of Greece. Listen, there is an influence behind kings and princes and presidents and prime ministers that you often do not see. Right out in the margin, would you, Revelation 16, 13, and 14. Let me read it to you. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. The context is the great tribulation period. He's describing this unholy trinity that will be at work during this final seven years, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, where the devil will take the place of God the Father as the dragon. The beast, the Antichrist, will take the place of God the Son. And the false prophet will point men to the Antichrist like the Spirit points men to Jesus Christ. And we are told that in out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs came. For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. He's talking about demons who are going to control the minds of princes and kings and prime ministers and convince them to go to a patch of land there in the valley of Jezreel for the biggest, most um, awesome battle the world has ever seen that Jesus will end. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. But the prince, verse 13 of Daniel 10, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me, for I had been left there with the kings, referring to human kings, of Persia. So we learn in this verse that there was someone on God's side by the name of Michael. Most of you know him. He's called Michael the archangel. He is the warrior angel. Gabriel is the messenger angel for Israel. 
Michael is the warrior angel. You see him in the book of Jude. It's like he's be dressed in armor. He fights with the devil over the body of the Lord, over, over the body of Moses. He is an, uh, a great angel of God. He is the one who will sound the trump of God, and he could do it before this day is over if God instructs him. So I want you to see here that there is this one, this great prince who protects. He is the one who is guarding Israel. He is the one who will ultimately give Israel the victory. And he is the one who will blow the trump of God. Verse 14, now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people, the Hebrew people, in the latter days. When are the latter days? We will see there's a distinction between the last days and the latter days. The latter days is that final seven years of human history as it relates especially to Israel. What will happen to your people in the latter days? For the vision pertains to the days yet future. And so in this verse, you find the prince of Persia, trying to keep this revelation that pertains to the latter days, today's yet future, from coming to Daniel. You know, the devil would be happy if I never preached on the second coming of Christ. There are liberal lost preachers today who will never speak of a literal, actual return from Jesus, of Jesus from heaven. And there are a lot of Christian, real born-again pastors who don't speak on Bible prophecy, and they have to jettison virtually one-third of the Scriptures. Listen, the devil laughs, he smiles in the corner when God's men ignore what God says concerning the end of times. For the testimony of prophecy is the spirit of Jesus. Or excuse me, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, John wrote. Prophecy is all about the Lord Jesus. It's all about how he's going to bring this world to a close. And as you study the Acts of the Apostles, you discover that Bible prophecy and the return of Christ is not secondary. It's not incidental. It's fundamental because it has an impact on your life. So there's this conflict delaying the revelation. Then there's the comfort to hear the revelation. The comfort to hear it. He's touched by an angel. And there are four different ways in which the angel touches the prophet Daniel. Verse 10. Then behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O oh, Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So first, the touch gives him strength to stand upright. Verse 11, the angel says, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you. Verse 14, now I've come to give you understanding of what will happen to your people, the Jewish people, in the latter days. And so not only does he touch him so he can stand, he touches him so he can see, so that he can have understanding. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to, uh, said to him who was standing before me, Oh, my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me and I've retained no strength. This is the third touch, the ability to speak. Verse 17, for how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, oh man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage, 
Be courageous. That's the command. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, may my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. And then this fourth touch is given so he might have strength. Don't miss it. He's given strength. He's touched by God so he can stand. He's touched by God so he can see. He's touched by God so he can speak. And he is touched by God that he might have strength. And God, in each case, gives him those four attributes through a spoken revelation from the angel. Now, understand, in many portions and in many ways, God spoke. The canon of Scripture is, is completed today. So God doesn't send angels today to give you a word. But the principle remains the same. God will give you the ability to stand, see, speak, and to have strength as you feed on Scripture. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Now understand, Daniel in his day had less than half of the Bible. You have a whole Bible, and some of you haven't picked it up since last Sunday. And you wonder why you can't see, why you don't understand what's really going on in your family. You don't understand why you can't speak with boldness. You don't understand why you can't stand with strength before the Lord, because God uses his word to pull those things off. Now certainly God could use an angel to come alongside. He does that sometimes, but most of what he does by angels is done invisibly. The writer of the Hebrews says of angels, are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service to those who will inherit salvation? Yes, they are. There are angels working, angels serving behind the scene that you do not see. And on occasion, they materialize in human form, always as males in Scripture, so that you can entertain angels literally without knowing it. And so finally, there's the communication of the revelation. Let's bring this in for a landing. I'm just about done. Stay with me. Then he said, verse 20, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold the prince of Greece an empire that is still 200 years in the future, but there's already an organization unfolding human history. I am about to also encounter the prince of Greece who's about to come. So this angel who brings the answer is about to go back to fight the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And the battle goes on. Look at verse 21. However, I will tell you before I leave what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who firmly stands with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So the angel assures Daniel, I'm not leaving until I give you the vision and I explain it to you. And this vision is so heavy, it is so great that the evil one, Satan, has sent some of his most powerful demons such that I am dependent on Michael, the archangel, to help me to pull this off. You say, what is the vision? You'll have to come back next time for chapter 11. You're going to have to tighten your pew belt because it is absolutely mind-blowing. Now, how can we apply this text of Scripture this morning? Remember, chapter 10 is just the introduction. It's just the prologue. Chapter 11 is the vision itself. Three applications, or let me give you at least two. I think we got time for two. First, don't forget that we're in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 again reminds us, our battle is not against people, flesh and blood, but principalities, rulers, powers, forces of darkness that are at work in the invisible realm. 
And if you've taken my course on angels and you know that Satan is highly organized just as God's holy angels are organized. You see, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, which is why we need to pray. Our real problem is not simply the elected officials. Our real problem is the power behind the throne. Now, I think you should get out and vote. It's part of your civic moral responsibility as as an American to be salt and light. But I hope you realize that that's not the real problem that is going on. Satan is organized. There are principalities and powers that are at work behind presidents and prime ministers. Remember, the, the, the angels are described like the stars in the sky. How many? Billions. And one third of all the angels fell. Satan is hard at work with his unholy demons. And behind this city, behind your city, behind this country, your country, behind this county, there is an invisible war that is going on. And that's why Christians need to pray. Look, there is a protection, I told a man this week, if you are a part of a local assembly, and if we choose to discipline you as elders by removing you from this assembly, then 1 Corinthians 5 teaches that you will come under spiritual warfare from the devil himself. There's a protective umbrella. Equally true, there's a protective umbrella on a nation, on a people whose God is the Lord. Blessed is he whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And when we say, no, God, we don't want you, and we wave our puny little fists in his face, then I want to tell you there are demons that are unleashed upon a nation and against presidents and leaders and other people that will bring a nation down. And the solution is not political. It is spiritual. Secondly, by faith in the Word of God exercised through prayer, we can have victory. By faith in the Word of God exercised through prayer, we can have victory. You say, wait a minute, I thought Christ's death on the cross conquered Satan. Yes, he did, but while the cross ensured our victory, it didn't end the war. Paul said to the church at Coloss that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, the public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hebrews 2 said that Christ's death rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. But please understand, while the cross ensures our victory, it did not end the war. The war goes on until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And right now, by faith in the word of God exercised through prayer, God can give you victory. John said, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. You say, I can use some of that victory, pastor. Well, remember, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if you have a casual relationship to the Bible and you wonder why your marriage is in such disrepair, you wonder why your kids are rebellious, you wonder why your life is falling apart, you've got the answer. You have to set your mind in Scripture. And when you begin to learn the Scripture and feed on it daily as Jesus taught, and you mix that with prayer, then you begin to exercise some divine weaponry. For the weapons of our warfare, Paul wrote, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. For the destruction of fortresses, we're destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're able to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
You let the scripture come through your mind and you'll be able to take every thought through the sieve of the word of God and turn it back to prayer to the living God. Look, there are only two offensive weapons that Paul gives in Ephesians 6. Prayer and the word of God. And it's praying Christians who are dependent Christians. It's feeding Christians that are spirit-filled Christians. Don't tell me you're a spirit-filled dependent Christian if you don't have times where you are alone with God, if you don't have times where you are in his word because you have deceived yourself. And months and years are ticking by and you're wasting your life instead of investing your life. Now, we may not be able to turn what is happening in our nation around because I know there is coming a final generation that will give allegiance to the Antichrist. But I can promise you this much. You can turn around what's going in your family today. You can turn around what's going in your life today. But it takes a person who is willing through prayer and through the word of God to go into this invisible war. Jesus Christ, he is the one who makes it all powerful. And so it's interesting to me during the time of this great battle that the Lord Jesus appears in one of his pre-incarnate revelations of himself. He is the one who makes it even possible for you to approach the Father. No one can come to the Father, the Bible says, but by him. He's pictured here in Daniel in white linen because he's holy. He's pictured here with a golden belt because he's important. He's pictured here with a, uh, with a body like barrel, with a fiery appearance because he is the judge. He is pictured here with a face like lightning because he's glorious. He's pictured here like fire because he's omniscient. And his voice is like the voice of a multitude because he's authoritative and ruling in the heavens above. And you would be wise to fall on your face and to worship him. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. This is not simply what you have said. This is what you are saying. These things have been written for us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. You said that you gave us the Old Testament for our encouragement. I pray today for some dear soul that is here who is unsure of heaven. They'd like to go. They think they might go, but they don't know. God, help them to see. Open their eyes to the reality that Jesus didn't die for some or most, but all of their sin and bore all of the wrath of, in his own body on the cross. That if they will come to this resurrected Lord today, he will save them. But your word says they must come in faith. They must believe what you promised, that whoever will call upon Jesus will be saved. Help some soul today, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And those of us who have met you, may our life be typified by a commitment to the word of God and through prayer. May more come in our midweek service and join us as we intercede at the throne of grace for real needs. May our homes, may our Bible studies be an enclave of prayer as a dependent people, knowing that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but evil, wicked principalities that are against your people. But thank you for the victory that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray in his holy name, amen.